0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 4th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It is now a week since US President Donald Trump launched the peace plan drawn up by his son-in-law. We look at the mixed response it has received around the world and how much the plan reflects the friendship between Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. My guests Yossi Meckelberg and Enrico Francaccini will also discuss a row between the UK's government and UK's political journalists, and another one between Australian
1: and Italian winemakers. Also ahead, Brazil is going through a tough time with its image abroad, with a president often ridiculed on the international stage. So a little soft power from the culture world will come in handy. Why Brazil is jumping
0: into the global streaming market. I'm Andrew Müller, Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined by Yossi Meckleberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University here in London, and Enrico Francaccini, London correspondent with La Repubblica. Well, let's start with the Middle East. It's now seven days since US President Donald Trump launched the peace plan drawn up by his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And just imagine how we'd have reacted five years ago if told that this would be a thing that people would one day say out loud. That week being just enough time for the incredulous laughter to, to subside. Let's see if we can figure out what was actually going on here. The latest rebuke to Kushner's magnum opus was issued yesterday by the 57 states, which comprised the Organisation for Islamic Cooperation, who made it clear that they will not, in this instance, be cooperating. Um, Yossi, first, you've now had a week to digest Jared Kushner's brainwave. Is there anything to be said for it at
2: all, do you think? I don't think my opinion improved on this plan. once <laughs> one iota. If, it, if it, anything changed, it got more mold on it than it had a, a week ago. What is the, first of all, what kind of peace agreement or peace ideas that you don't have the main protagonists, both of them, around the table? It's an, it's, inno, it's right, a, it's an innovative approach to diplomacy. Yeah, it's an innovative, and some innovations are better than others. <laughs> and 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 this one probably will be <laughs> thrown to the hip of, you know, your history in no in, in time. You know, the Palestinians won't subscribe to anything there. There is nothing for them. If you look at just the map, it will tell you why you been a Palestinian say, why would they even look at it? It's going to be a small territory surrounded from all its sides by Israeli military. They won't have any army. Jerusalem, you know, of course, there was contradiction in the speech itself, saying that the capital will be in East Jerusalem, but the capital at Jerusalem will stay united. So then you will realize that this part of Jerusalem, completely outside the barrier, in Abu Dis and other places, the idea that it's going to be a financial bonanza for the Palestinians, 50 billion. So let's put the 50 billion in context. It's over 10 years. We have no idea who is going to give the 50 billions. I was part of what's known as track one and a half, track two negotiation, that we estimated the cost only of settling the refugees is 150 billion. So not even a third of settling the, the, the issue of the Palestinian refugees. So it looks like more a Netanyahu's wish list than a pla- peace plan. Uh, Enrico, is it therefore
0: being unduly sceptical to suggest that this whole thing was, d- in effect, designed to fail? It was It was making um, the Palestinians an offer that they couldn't but refuse in order just to portray them again as the unreasonable party.
3: Well, I don't know what was the purpose, uh, the objective of the Trump administration. On the other end, uh, this plan reminds you of the old say that, uh, unfortunately, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Not to refer to this plan, but I was a correspondent in Israel at the time of the last peace plan, the 2000 uh, plan negotiated by Bill Clinton failed, and I remember At the time, the Saudi ambassador to Washington accompanying uh, Arafat, the leader of the Palestinians, uh, to uh, Washington from the airport, telling him, please, Mr. Arafat, take this plan. You'll never get a better one. And If you look at that, that plan was so much better, gave them basically half of Jerusalem as capital and a contiguity of uh, uh, space in uh, the West Bank. And the only thing that they didn't give them was the right of Turn to the refugee, which everybody really understood that was uh, something, give a, give a take, that they should have uh, given up on that. But uh, now it is, it is, it's a sorry plan, and uh, we will, I agree with Yossi, it's not going anywhere. But what the Palestinians can do, I, I read someone saying the, the Palestinian situation is so bad right now that, that even someone is suggesting, well, consider it, uh, because where do they go from here?
0: Yossi, is it therefore perhaps more useful to frame uh, this pitch of Jared Kushner and Donald Trump's in the context of Donald Trump's obvious by now unmistakable affinity that he feels at least for uh, for for what? We might think of as strongman leaders, which is obviously what Benjamin Netanyahu seeks to portray himself as. Does, does he see in his own head Netanyahu as alongside Erdogan or Bolsonaro or Putin as one of those, those tough guys that
2: Donald Trump imagines himself being? Yeah, and in one word, populism. Going to nationalism, yes. The strong leaders and Israel is a strong country, and that's the reason they actually can afford to sign a generous peace agreement. I agree with Enrico. There were opportunities. Came David, more taba after this. Definitely the Olmert Abu Mazen negotiations. This was the kind of the most. Forcoming uh, proposal that Israel even pro- to to the Palestinians. this was a great missed opportunity there, but again, timing is also very important and right now you have an agreement between the indicted and the impeached and, between, <laughs> and, and, and and both of them have to do more with 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 domestic politics, but at the same time, if you look who surrounds Trump, those are people that are not only close to this idea, the hawkish attitude to diplomacy but also to the settlements and to the right wing in Israel, the, the ambassador in Israel, David Friedman. He is a supporter of one of the most extreme settlements in, 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 in the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank. So in this idea, yes, it's part of the zeitgeist now that we are populist and, and, and nativist and nationalist, but it's also what you said earlier, it's, it's about the, the nature of diplomacy. No one wants actually to sit and think about diplomacy and negotiation is an arena in which you compromise and everyone ends uh, equally unhappy. <laughs> what, what, what you're looking now is that to win over or if, if you get a, a, a win-lose situation, this is not going to work.
0: Yossi Meckelberg and Enrico Franciscini, thank you both very much for the moment. We'll have more from you shortly. First, here is Monocle's Marcos Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today.
4: Thanks, Andrew. Hong Kong has recorded its first death related to the coronavirus, now the second death outside of mainland China. The outbreak has killed more than 420 people in China, with the number of reported cases now topping 20,000. Macau has ordered all casinos to close for two weeks, citing increased fears of the virus spreading from person to person. The race for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination has been thrown into confusion in Iowa. The Iowa Democratic Party says results will be delayed until sometime later today because of inconsistencies in voting data. Party officials have said there is not, however, an issue with the integrity of the vote. And the UK will ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2035, five years earlier than planned. The announcement comes as Prime Minister Boris Johnson gets set to launch the UN Climate Summit COP26, which will take place in Glasgow this November. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank
0: you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Yossi Meckelberg and Enrico Francaccini. Let's look now at the United Kingdom, the recently returned government, of which seems strangely enthused by certain of the tactics which have made the Trump White House such a byword for smoothly humming administration. Yesterday, Downing Street attempted to stage a somewhat juvenile set piece in which they briefed reporters from certain outlets and excluded, or perhaps more accurately, neglected to invite reporters from others. In a gesture of solidarity, several of the reporters from outlets deemed acceptable walked out as well. Uh, Enrico, first of all, to that gesture that the journalists made of essentially saying that you brief all of us or none of us, uh, is that a smart way for media to confront the government?
4: Well, I
3: think
0: to to boycott a
3: government that selects journalists according to who they like—it's the only way you can answer. It's the only, and and I think it will work. And I think whoever had this idea will realize that uh, um, it's not going to bring consensus or uh, to uh, Boris Johnson. But uh, they do try. Politicians try that in Italy. See, it's important when journalists. uh, have a solidarity in front of this kind of problems. In Italy, when Matteo Salvini, the leader of the uh, center-right, the rightist party, Liga, uh, was minister of interior, a journalist from my newspaper tried to ask him a question that he didn't like. And he, he, and he said in press conference, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to answer mm. you because you're not a good journalist. You're against me. but And the other, the colleagues, instead of uh, walking out, uh, they said, oh, OK, stop it. I want to change uh, the subject. And this is, I think, a wrong attitude. What uh, happened yesterday in Dino Street was very good, in my
2: view.
0: Uh, you this is something very much out of the Donald Trump playbook or Donald Trump and his acolytes playbook. Most recently, of course, uh, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, uninviting uh, national public radio from his press pool on an overseas trip. But are gestures of solidarity like the one we're talking about, is there a danger that they are actually doing what the government wants, which is it removes journalists and from their orbit and it removes, therefore, that accountability? Because we do no longer exist in a world in which the government relies on media to disseminate a message.
2: But again, I agree with Enrico. solidarity is is very important because going back to the zeitgeist that we are you know it's not it's not only pompeo it's it's, it's trump himself calling bloomberg uh, mini Mike and also try to diminish in one way the role of free media. We just can't have it, definitely not in, in, in democracies. We, we, we see it enough, witness enough in dictatorship and authoritarian regimes. If we start to undermine freedom of speech, we remove one of the pillars of our democracies. And in this sense, I think also the threat should go to government. If you won't let us report from there, we report wherever sources we are going to have. So you rather talk to us or we'll use the sources, the other sources without asking you because you're not ready to talk to us. So it's, it goes both ways. If they want balanced journalism, government need to understand the importance of talking to journalists and not trying to be selective, but the next thing it become more and more selective until they have probably few journalists appointed by, by the government itself, and hey, it's the 17th anniversary of the death of George Orwell, and we are going to live in a well in a society. <laughs> but Enrico, isn't
0: it the case, though, that this is kind of working for the governments that do this? They have understood, and perhaps a government such as the one we have here in Britain, which is led by a journalist or a former journalist, understands better than others, um, that journalists are possibly disliked even more than most politicians.
3: Well, yes. I mean, uh, someone used to say they, they are distrusted more than the people who sell you used cars, right? <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody trusts the journalists with some reason, perhaps. But And it is true what you said, that they can, like Trump, uh, can uh, bypass journalists with Twitter and... Uh, Um, Boris Johnson has started to do these uh, videos on Facebook and social media in which he gets the questions selected by Downing Street and he answers um, uh, questions from the public. Uh, There was a question about what kind of shampoo he uses, for example, recently. Very controversial, very aggressive type of journalism. Uh, I still believe Britain and America are uh, countries in which... Um, journalism, uh, press freedom is very important. In the long run, I don't think the politicians will be able to bypass uh, uh, journalism.
0: Yossi, is there anything that journalists can or should do, perhaps even more gestures like this to, I don't know if restore trust is, is the right phrase, because you're trying to reach back out to a large part of an audience which has decided it would rather believe what it wishes to believe, rather than what I guess, legacy media outlets were reporting.
2: I think part of the distrust in journalism is a kind of kill the messenger. We don't like Mm. the message and then we distrust because we don't want to hear. So then Brexit is great and and America... uh, uh, Put America as number one is the right thing to do, and the, and the rest of it. So it's sometimes about the message, but also all of us that engage with journalism, we we need to show responsibility. And we know in the UK we have between the sublime to the ridiculous, we be very good, very good journalism. But at the same time, some of the tabloids and make believe and invented journalism. And I think that's the profession be, need at some areas to become more professional to know, actually to fight it back with ensuring that whatever We say whoever publish is well substantiated, not just because we sit and we would like to say that. It's it's out there. Well,
0: finally, on today's news panel, an item which might require you, Yossi, to act as an umpire in a dispute between (laughs) Australia and Italy over a matter of crucial national significance. In the course of negotiations between Australia and the EU over a free trade agreement, and I'm sure I do recall hearing somewhere that these things were supposed to be easy, Italy has suggested preventing Australian winemakers from calling their Prosecco, Prosecco. Now, as things stand, Australia's response to this skullduggery is falling short of threatening armed retaliation. But for how much longer? Um, en- Enrico, let's let's see if we can try and sort this out between right. our, our two great nations and peoples. How can this be resolved short of bloodshed?
3: Well, I will offer... An olive branch, which uh, is appropriate with the uh, oh, indi- Prosecco, you indi- so. can go
0: with it. Oh, hang on just a second. Are Australian olive growers still going to be allowed to pour their olives? <laughs> oh, well, olives.
3: This is a secondary <laughs> Where issue. Does we'll, this end? we'll look
0: at that later. But um,
3: first of all, as an Italian, I like Australian wines. I want to say that straight away. And, uh, and uh, I understand that the EU and Italy have certain rights to say, you know, you cannot uh, sell a mozzarella that is not mozzarella,
0: for example, totally... uh, See also parmesan cheese, etc. Exactly. But uh,
3: I also believe, uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde that said that uh, imitation is a form of admiration. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, I don't like when uh, there are uh, these Italians, uh, it always happens, ah, you cannot have pizza with ananas, for example, or you cannot have uh, this, oh, this pizza is not the original one. But thanks to the old imitations, of pizza that are made in the world. I know people in New York think pizza has been invented in New York and, and it came out as a slice in originally. In Brooklyn, <laughs> not just New York, in Brooklyn, <laughs> <but> in Brooklyn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but thanks to that, pizza became one of the most popular food around the world. So, through these fights, I believe, uh, uh, in the end, Prosecco will beat Champagne
0: if we, Australians and Italians, get together. Well, I, I think that is the one thing on which people can always get together is an opportunity to beat up on the French. So, that, so, <laughs> so, so, so there is actually that. Um, see this is a weird one because... On the subject of champagne, this was a row I can recall France and Australia uh, having many years ago because Australian winemakers used to call their fizzy drink champagne, which the French were understandably upset about. They said you can't call it champagne unless it's from Champagne, the region. But the thing is, Prosecco's different, isn't it? Because it is the name of a place in Italy, but it's also the name of the grape, which is, of course, named after the place.
2: So Australian Prosecco is still Prosecco, isn't it? First, I'm all a coffee person, so I'm not the right person. And then what would you with cappuccino, for instance, is this Italian as, as well? But... For me, it's like, forgive me, to uh, almost to make a serious point here. <laughs> that oh, it's, please, uh, somebody had to. Yeah, it's, it it's, it's makes also sort of colonialism because, you know, food colonialism, you know you're not going to use it because it yes. comes from from here. I think, as you say in many ways, it's what it contains, not the name. So, of course, if you go and make it from completely different grape and it's completely different taste, so we can argue about the quality if it's up to what we'll regard as champagne or Prosecco. But at the same time, just to say, just because you're Australian, what about Malbec? What about any other wine that everyone producing? Israel is becoming a a big producer. So do we need to call it differently or to give different names to grapes as a result of it? Because they are grown in Australia and not uh, not in Italy. I I think we are into kind of... landmine which probably <laughs> the, i don't the, know i'm not going to be the empire here. <laughs> the, the best let
3: let the best prosecco win
0: <laughs> and, and, enrico you have already said right here on this broadcast that you like australian wine and you like pineapple on pizzas so some <laughs> oh my some, god somebody in somebody, somebody in rome right now is probably already working on revoking your yes, citizenship yes, so you yes. you pretty much have nothing to lose Is there just not a problem, as long as there's something on the label saying, made in Australia, does anyone actually care beyond that? Is that really going to damage the business of an Italian Prosecco grower? I I
3: don't think so. I agree with Yossi. What counts is what's inside the bottle. If it is a bad Prosecco... People will not drink it. And if uh, they they want to drink the original one, the Prosecco made in Italy, they always have a choice. Of course, it's also a matter of quality and price. And so sometimes myself, I buy Australian wines or wine from New Zealand. (laughs) You're you're in enough trouble as as it is, Enrico.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'll stop here. Yossi Mecklberg and Enrico Francaccini, thank you both very much for joining us. In a moment, we'll hear about Brazil's ambitions in the global streaming market. You're listening to Monocle's... House stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally, today, as the world's streaming market becomes increasingly competitive, Brazil has decided it wants a piece of that pie. Here is Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This is the CBS Evening
3: News with Walter Cronkite. One, two, three, four, five, six,
2: seven, eight.
4: Schlemiel, Schlemazo, Haas & Veprin Corporation. The last mosquito that bit me had to into
1: the Betty Ford Clinic. You might think the streaming market is already saturated in the United States and Europe, but with the sector primarily dominated by Western companies, there is certainly room for a promising regional player. Enter Brazil, which is making its debut in the booming international streaming business this year. The country's largest media organization, Globo, premiered its streaming platform Globoplay in the United States in January. There will be a big event to celebrate the launch tomorrow. Brazil is going through a tough time with its image abroad, with a president often ridiculed on the international stage, so a little soft power from the culture world will come in handy. With their vast library of iconic telenovelas, such as Avenida Brasil, Global Play has already scored a big hit in Brazil, with more than 22 million users. Can he repeat the success abroad? Almost certainly. Brazilian TV is not so new to international audiences, especially global telenovelas, which have already been exported to more than 130 countries. Plus, the streaming service's first international foray will be in the US, where more than 1.4 million Brazilians live. It's healthy for the film industry not to leave Netflix to produce and promote regional productions around the world. Global Play produces its own original series too. Eight in 2019, with plans for 16 in 2020. It's adapting to attract a younger audience who are craving a more fast-paced and cinematic touch to their products. Among the series available in the U.S. service will be Aruanas, a hard-hitting drama series set in the Amazon about a group of women fighting against a mining company in the region. I'll be counting the days until the service is launched in Europe later this year. It's about time more people outside Brazil experience the excellent content of our sleek, sexy and dramatic soap operas. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco.
0: Fernando, thank you. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marco Sippi and researched by Yoling Goffan and Tia Thomas Alexander. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. That's 10 a.m. in San Francisco. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.